3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. How do we make a self? There are the obvious things, where we were born, the color of our skin, our inheritances of status and culture. But as Aisha Harris's new book Wannabe: Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me demonstrates, the culture that we pour into ourselves helps us understand ourselves and process the world. This is a fun, funny book that maps Harris's very particular world. But it's one that I recognize, too, from Stevie Wonder to Clueless to Richard Linklater's Before Sunset with some Spice Girls and bell hooks thrown in. You may also know Harris as a delightful, insightful host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. She joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Aisha Harris, critic and host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. She's got a new book out, too. Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It's kind of a coming-of-age story of sorts, told through a series of essays on pop culture that deal with blackness and representation, love, and marriage. The Little Mermaid and the IP that never ends. Thanks so much for joining us, Aisha.
2: Thank you much so much for having me.
3: And also, happy Pub Day. This is the day the book is coming out, right?
2: Yes, it is. It is. Are you feeling good about it? I'm feeling good and feeling surreal. It's mm-hmm. it's it's all. I'm here. Yes, <laughs> it happened. <laughs> Welcome. Um, <laughs>
3: So let's talk a little bit about your name. It's in first essay in the book here. And you write about people associating your name with a song from the 90s by the group Another Bad Creation called Aisha. Spelled differently than your name, though. Yes, yes. Yeah.
2: Spelled differently. Yes.
3: And you would correct people and tell them, no, that's not where my name came from. So where did it come from?
2: Well, I as I write, I thought it came from Stevie Wonder, who uh, his daughter is named Aisha, and he wrote a song called "Isn't She Lovely." It's on the wonderful "Songs in the Key of Life."
3: We have a little bit. We have a little bit. Should we listen to?
2: Yeah, let's listen to it.
3: I mean, this isn't a... Very schmaltzy, amazing, beautiful <laughs> song. Who wouldn't want this to be where their name came from?
2: Exactly. And in the song, he he literally says, life is Aisha, the meaning of her name. And that is, you know, what my parents meant, intended. My name means life to them. Um, and so uh, it's really interesting because I wanted it to be this song because Stevie Wonder just feels more um, sophisticated. Mm. It feels more interesting than this one hit A wonder musical song. genius. Yes, a musical genius, as I call it. <laughs> him Um, and the other song Aisha by another bad creation just felt not as not a bad
3: little fad you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you don't yeah I understand that and so then you as your life went on you told this story to a million people as it as it happens people ask about your (laughs) name Um, and then you went to like write about this and so you had to go back to your dad and kind of do some fact checking on your own life story
2: yeah and uh, it turns out it didn't quite happen the way I thought it was. I mean, he was obviously aware of it. This Stevie, that song was yeah, playing. He had heard of Stevie Wonder. Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> look, we he still has the album, like the actual album of Songs of the Key of Life. It was always playing. So, you know, but it, it, it came from a slightly different uh, source. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, obviously, it wasn't Aisha, because I had already been born. Um, but it, it it was a different source. And it kind of deflated me. And it also just led me on this journey to figure out, OK, why did I want this song to be like the direct source the the thing that I wanted everyone to know about it as opposed to being excited that they remember this random 90s song Um, which to this day just literally a week or two ago someone else I met was like oh remember that song another I was like (laughs) yes (laughs) of course I I was going (laughs) to ask you to sing
3: it but you know I know you don't actually (laughs) like the song Um, and what did you come to I mean what was your conclusion about why you wanted to be associated with Stevie
2: well I had to do some Deep soul searching and realized that part of it was a, me being somewhat ashamed of my blackness, and obviously Stevie Wonder is black, but I think there are, gri- like there are gradations of these things. And Stevie Wonder is someone who is respected by everyone, you know, who doesn't love or at least appreciate Stevie Wonder, and um, I felt as though another bad creation felt more in line with, um, you know, when you think about all these characters in movies and TV shows, uh, especially in the 90s that, that I grew up on, who had s- names that sound Black, whether it was mm-hmm. Shanene on Martin or, um, you know, Bon Cui Cui on, on Mad TV, I felt like Another Bad Creation kind of, uh, kind of slid into that category more. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel uncomfortable. And I had to really dig into, like, why I felt this way and um, put that away as I grew older and realized, like, there's no need for me to be ashamed of this song in, in the way that I was.
3: And how did you end up feeling about those types of skits as you were going through, though? Because, I mean... It, I, you know but you i hadn't thought about those things in quite some time yeah and i remember watching them in the 90s and i think you know for better or worse i think i remember finding them funny and now i didn't even want to look them up on youtube <laughs> like that's how much i did not want to know what that was
2: yeah i mean look they're funny to a point but at the same time i noticed this pattern of using these quote unquote black names mm-hmm. sound black sounding names to apply to black female characters who were often quote unquote ghetto or, you know, the type who could throw hands easily or who was quick to violence or just like neck rolling, all this sort of St- negative stereotypes of black women and um, obviously Aisha does not fall under that like Aisha is a name it's a, it's a Muslim name, it's an Arab- Arabic name there are millions of people I'm assuming named Aisha. so it's not like it was like solely the province of black people but it is a name I think that has been associated a lot in America at least with, with black people um, and yeah I, I it just I had to really kind of <laughs> figure out how this is all making me feel and and, and push back against that as I grew older yeah
3: um, do you want to hear the story of my strange name, yes. Alexis Madrigal? Because people, so I was born in Mexico City, and my parents had this Greek friend there for whatever reason, and they just thought there are two choices. This is like two totally different worlds for me. were Nicholas, so I'd have been Nick Madrigal, which is mm. just so weird, or Alexis. <laughs> and they they chose Alexis, and then we moved back to the United States. And during the time when we'd been gone, there was a show called Dynasty, ah, which yeah. I don't know if you ever looked into this in your pop culture writing, but it was like they would show it twice a week and it would be like number one and number three in the ratings <laughs> for the week.
2: My mom loved Dynasty. Oh, my God. <laughs>
3: and Joan Collins played a character named Alexis. So by the time we got back to the States,
4: mm. it
3: was definitively, without a doubt, one of the most popular girls' names, so-called, in America. Yeah, And so, growing up, looking like (laughs) I had this name, Alexis, (laughs) and I actually, much like you, I came to sort of love and appreciate it, even though it did create oftentimes these moments of awkwardness, moments of misunderstanding, and. But then I started to see it as like kind of like a way that you could tell your story, you know? Like this is how I came in. This is how I grew into myself. Exactly through this thing. Um, So this book, uh, "Wannabe: Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me." Was there a moment in your life when you started to realize, like, man, these shows and songs and movies aren't just sort of inert or entertainment, but this is really like how, for me, I catalyzed my development as a person?
2: I mean, I think long before I started writing this book, I realized that. I think that's partially why I decided to enter into writing about culture was, you know, somewhere along the line in- High late high school or college, I realized oh people people like Roger Ebert, people like Pauline kale were really using film and TV and and, and criticism to sort of explore uh, of pop culture to sort of explore bigger ideas and bigger themes. And as someone who grew up always kind of wondering about representation in film and TV and and how it was working on me and and how I felt you know when I saw the black best friend on TV you know I and I realized I could make a sort of career out of it, or try to at least, um, it, it really put into context, like, okay, I have been shaped by this in ways that are both obvious to me, and then sometimes I have to go back and realize years later, or, you know, however long later, oh, this was working on me in different ways, or I, I approach it in a different way than mm-hmm. I originally did when I first encountered this piece of, you know, music or art or whatever. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, let's talk about The Little Mermaid, which was something that you kind of encountered purely as a kid, as a, as a thing you loved. And what was your relationship? I mean, everyone knows what I'm talking about. The Disney movie... Red haired underwater
2: clamshell bra, <laughs> Clam <shell> bra yeah. <laughs>
3: talking lobster, talking crab friend, talking lobster
2: friend, Ta- talking crab crustacean yes. friend. Yes. yeah, <laughs> Sebastian. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was one of the first movies I ever saw in theaters. I think my mom told me that I would have been only like one or so, so I don't remember it at all. But we had it on VHS, watched it over and over and over. I could, if you wanted to, me too, I could reenact the entire film right now. Uh, but that's how deeply ingrained that that movie was uh, for me. And um, I wanted the Ariel doll as you do when you're a kid in uh, you want the doll of whatever character you idolize or whatever. And, you know, my house was a no white dolls household because my parents were concerned about me wanting dolls that looked like me as mm-hmm. opposed to that didn't. Um, so I, I couldn't. Get it, and instead, I created a uh, my own aerial doll, my own version, out of a piece of tissue. Uh, <laughs> I know it's. I kids I, are amazing. I, I yeah, had the. I yeah. had a, such a great imagination. Sometimes yeah. I wonder where it went. Um, but yeah, I created it out of a piece of tissue, multiple pieces of tissue, just like you know, because they only last so long. But uh, yeah, that that was how desperate I was for oh, an aerial doll. My God,
3: did you uh, <laughs> did you go around singing? I know that you also. Uh, you should did a theater degree at Northwestern. Did you just I go did. around singing Little Mermaid all the time?
2: All, all the time, uh, yeah. I I would sing it to myself. I would sing. I look, I still sing it sometimes in the shower. Like <laughs> I mean, you can. You
3: know, it's, it's an open mic. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, yeah. I I I also love um Little Mermaid. When we come back from the break, we're not gonna do it quite yet. We're gonna talk about um the best villain songs from Disney movies. We're talking to Aisha Harris. She's critic and host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. She's here with us this morning to talk about her new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. She's also local. Moved to Oakland uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Are you Are you enjoying our Bay Area?
2: I, I do. I like it. It's, okay. it's great.
3: That's good. <laughs> um, you can hear more from her. She'll be, she's going to be uh, talking tomorrow evening at Mrs. Dalway's in Berkeley. And she'll be in... a Corda Madeira at Book Passage this Saturday at 4. Um, we would love to hear from you. What piece of pop culture has shaped you the most? Or, like, what have you really learned about yourself from pop culture? You can give us a call. The number is 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. The email is it's forum at KQED.org and you can find us on, you know, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We're KQED forum. Can you give us the answer, your answer to that question? What piece of pop culture do you think has shaped you the
2: most? Um it's probably the Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I'm being completely honest, it is it is probably Little Mermaid. Just because it's the, the one that's been with me the longest.
3: That's so interesting. Yeah.
2: I you know, I don't think it has shaped me, but certainly the thing that
3: I pumped into my brain the most as a kid with the Top Gun soundtrack. Ooh, nice. (laughs) Highway to the danger zone. (laughs) That's how you end up doing live radio. You're just like, this is it, this is how we're doing. Um, We're talking with Aisha Harris, critic and host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for a discussion of Disney villains and black criticism. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined here in Studio B by Aisha Harris, critic and host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour, talking about her book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture that Shapes Me. Today is her pub day. Congratulations again. We do want to do a little bit of live criticism here about the best (laughs) Disney villain songs. Before we get to that, we want to hear from you. What piece of pop culture has shaped you the most? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. Okay, so what do you think the real contenders would be for best villain song in a Disney movie?
2: Um... I mean, they'd all, I think, come from the... The golden era. The 90s. Yeah, 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 the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, For me, it would have to be... We're going to keep on with this theme of Little Mermaid. (laughs) Poor Unfortunate Souls. Do you mean poor, unfortunate... Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I don't know
3: how you even said that without singing it.
2: I know, I'm I'm trying, I'm (laughs) trying.
3: Let's hear a little bit of Poor Unfortunate Soul.
2: What I want from
3: you is... Your voice.
5: But without my voice, how
6: can I... You'll have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the importance of the body language. Ha! The men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yet on land it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word, and after all, dear, what is idle prattle for? Come on, then, not all that impressed with conversation. Two gentlemen avoid it when they can But they don't ensue and fawn On a lady who's withdrawn It's she who holds her tongue who gets a man Come on, you poor unfortunate soul Go ahead, make your choice I'm a very busy woman and I haven't got all day It won't cost much, just your voice You poor unfortunate soul It's sad my sweet you've got to pay the toll take a gulp and take a breath and go ahead and sign the scroll Plot some, jets and now I've got her boys the boss is on the a
3: roll, roll. <laughs> sorry. sorry I didn't know the mic was oh, oh, <laughs> on how does anyone not ching not that part you know I, what I mean I know I know it's
2: so perfect
3: so what do you think is so great about this song
2: um you know I think that Pat Carroll who was the voice of Ursula um she just puts her soul and her like her guts into this song, um, and the animation also is great. I love the part, the body language part, where she's just like rolling, and you know that character was based off of, in in part off of Divine, the great drag queen who worked with with a lot of that. John Waters movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can see that inspiration in her performance, uh, mm. and I I just I just think it's a great. Even Howard Ashman's lyrics are just so. Perfect. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I love it.
3: The bosses. I just before I even knew what like Torch, like a Torch song was, I feel like I knew that that's that, you know, this melodrama and those like big crashes. Really amazing. Um, there is another contender for this, though, um, which I did not really watch a ton of Disney music I mean I knew them I saw them but I didn't really like listen to the soundtracks and then I remember being with my kids and listening to the Lion King soundtrack and you get to scars song be prepared mm. this song to me it's so good just as music um, and particularly this breakdown that we get to in the end is just amazing so let's let's hear this too the future is littered with prizes, and though I may have seen The point
6: that I must emphasize is You won't get a sniff without me! So prepare for the cool of the century
3: Be prepared for the murkiest scam Meticulous planning, tenacity spine Oh, man, so good. Jada <laughs> tried to catch me again singing. Uh, I I knew this time. Um, this, you know, I just feel like that breakdown, I mean, it hits so much harder than you feel like a Disney song could.
2: I know. And again, those lyrics, like, uh, meticulous planning, it's just like, mm-hmm. ah. And, and it's Jeremy Irons, the way he just oozes those, yeah. those lyrics is just wonderful. It's so good. Um...
3: So you have not liked the remakes. You have not liked... This is a little preview of the IP That Never Ends discussion we're going to have in a minute. You have not liked the remakes of really any of these movies.
2: No. I mean, look, even just Be Prepared in the remake, the quote, it wasn't live action, like the all-CGI remake of The Lion King that came out a few years ago. Um, they, they like, hacked Be Prepared and turned it into not even... They, they cut verses and it was a weird version of be prepared and i'm like how are you gonna take the best song in that movie and chop it up like this um and also there's just this formula that disney has now of of trying to make their movies quote unquote more updated progressive for Mm -hmm. modern audiences while also just copying and pasting most of what they've already done (laughs) (laughs) and to me it just feels creatively um Bankrupt in a way. And I and I want I want kids to have better than that. Yeah.
3: Yeah, like you can kind of sense the photocopy. You're saying like yes. it loses some definition, loses some edges.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of scenes that are shot almost shot for shot in each of these films, uh, you know. So
3: because that's for you, right? Because there's like uh, like someone who loved that movie is going to want to see the live action version of that. Is that kind of the?
2: I think that's what they think, and also of course they want if if we have kids, those of us they want us to pass it on to them but for something that might more likely appeal to them because i guess traditional hand um you know handmade animation is no longer in in vogue
3: <laughs> yeah i know but even yeah it's so it's so interesting because it does they end up in that uncanny valley so often it feels like a, yeah not being a new thing but also not being the old thing
2: yeah the new sebastian looks real but he also doesn't look like He's he's very kind of stiff. He's he's, he has no animation to
3: him. So weird. And the original, yeah, was this incredibly dynamic character. By the way, I also um, googled uh, live here on the show with Sebastian a crab or a lobster. He's crap. Yeah, I, he, which I I didn't know. That just changed my whole life. I, I thought he was a lobster from no. the nineteen eighty nine onwards.
2: He, he he says it in the uh, I think under the sea. He says crustacean crab. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know. I, yeah, like I said, I could sing the whole. You're like you're like
3: don't question me. <laughs> um, let's ring in uh, Don in Menlo Park. Welcome. Morning. I have well, I had
7: two comments, but now I have three. The first one is um, Belle was my was my girl. Oh. So she read books. She yes. was an active participant in her life. Um, so she's my favorite. So much so that when it came out, I actually taught myself to raise one eyebrow, um, which is a very wow. powerful gesture anyway, but it was like I loved her that much.
3: At what age? At what age? Okay. Like at nine? I love a nine-year-old with a raised um, eyebrow. I was
7: 12 when it came oh, out. Oh, got it. So All right. I think good, I'm good. about 10 year old. 10 years older than uh, than Miss Aisha. Um, uh, so the second thing is uh, Drogo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. His Ooh. his mm. song is evil, evil, evil. Like,
2: Hellfire is mean, called, yeah.
7: Oh, it's terrible. Like, yeah. I listened to it as an adult. I'm like, oh, my God, what was Disney showing <laughs> us as kids? Um, and then my, uh, the question I had was, um, so The Princess and the Frog came out when I was a late teenager, and so it didn't—it's not something I watched a lot. And I was wondering, Aisha, what you felt when you saw a black princess mm. in the Disney canon?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good and
3: Thanks.
2: Yeah, thank you, Don. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I was in—I think college, or yeah, just graduated from college when that came out in 2009. And I remember being really excited about it and seeing it and feeling like. I I like this, but I didn't love it in part because I felt like the songs weren't quite there. I wanted Mm. a little bit more. I've now since grown and I I also had this like hesitation like she's our first princess but then Mm -hmm. she also spends half the movie as a frog what is this Uh, right (laughs) (laughs) so I was like come on now um and and so but I've grown to really really love that movie and it's grown in my appreciation even more and um I I I'm excited that you know when when you go to Disneyland, you can see Tiana, and that she's also a black princess who has her own story. She's not like a we don't have we didn't have a Princess and the Frog Disney version before this, and um, that's my big issue with the the new Little Mermaid. It's just like. Eh it's nice that she's black but also we could have couldn't you just give her her own like new story like create a new black princess
3: yeah there's got to be multiple mermaids in the sea right you know and maybe without (laughs) such a dark sexist horrible understory (laughs) it seems like maybe we could move on from that story of giving up your voice in order to have a man like i don't know yeah yeah there's only so much you can do with the core principle of that um so you sort of gestured at this a couple times in this conversation so far, which are kind of the expectations of you or the pressure you put on yourself or that other people put on you as a black critic reviewing things made by or for black people. Like, how have you come to understand your responsibility there?
2: You know, when I first started approaching criticism... I was often thinking about, okay, representation, representation. How does how are these characters showing up on screen and how are they making me feel about my Blackness and, and how it's representing, quote-unquote, Black culture? And I write about, you know, struggling with this early on and and certain movies that I reviewed or TV shows where I was worried that because I didn't love or even really like that art, that it would somehow, you know, make it so that studios would no longer want to make those movies and that's part of the problem Mm -hmm. and look I'm a lowly critic we can only do so much studios are going (laughs) to do what they're going (laughs) to do and and I think my responsibility what I've grown to realize is that it is to you know respect black art just like I respect every other kind of art and that means engaging with it even if I don't like it, being able to articulate that and be uh, unafraid to say that I don't like it and then line out why I I don't like it. Um, And I think that especially now when we have so much Black art being created and put out in the mainstream and filmmakers and creators having even more access than they did 10, 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. I think we don't necessarily have to operate from that scarcity mindset anymore. Um, And I think that you know, black art is not fragile. We should be able to uh, treat it uh, like any other art. And sometimes that means not liking it. And sometimes that means being critical of it. Um, But not everyone wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> do you hear? Do you get major pushback from people like when
3: you're sort of like, yeah, I don't. Know, oh. Little Mermaid, man.
2: Oh, when I when I wrote my review for NPR of little this new Little Mermaid, I got a lot of uh, you're anti-black, or uh, even just literally people saying you need to be considerate because you, if you don't say good things about this, they're not going to make more. I'm like, this is Disney. This is the giant corporation. They are not listening to my. <laughs> <laughs> my review and saying, hmm, you know what? Maybe maybe we shouldn't make another movie with black people. That's on them. That's that's their decision. But I, I'm just here to tell you whether or not it might be worth seeing, and you can do with that as you'd like. Yeah. I mean, how do you process
3: that just, like, personally, though? I mean, do you write back to those people and give no. them that explanation? Or do you just sort of like, all right, you stay – in the unreads over here.
2: Well, now I'm just gonna tell people to read my book because I write all about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: just send them an Amazon link. Every yeah. time someone, uh, DMs, <laughs> you're just like, here you go, you can check this out here. Um, you know, I feel like there's another kind of hard question about representation. You don't reckon with it directly in the book, but it's, you know, media representation has increased so much, specifically for black people. There's just so much more media. It's also better representations and less stereotypical and cliche and terrible things. And yet the economic progress is not really following with that in terms of, you know, closing wage and and wealth gap. So, like, how do you see the relationship between the representations that we get in media and, you know, the underlying kind of structural economic realities?
2: I mean, I think that art in many ways can reflect what is happening in real life, and I, I, I think that yes, there have been more diverse representations. I think what's uh, what I am especially interested in when it comes to black representation is even more representation of like people who aren't necessarily on the at the very bottom or at, or at the very top um, mm-hmm. more middle ground and in, in, like I- interpretations um, I that's why i like to show like insecure because they were kind of you, you know they're they were buppies in a way urban <laughs> <laughs> but they were they were also struggling and they they were you know millennial in many ways of like not having a lot of money all the time or resources in that way um, and I think that that's you know now that we have so much represent or so many different parts of representation. I think it's great to have something like Black Panther. I think it's great to have something like The Little Mermaid, even, I, even if I don't believe that it's actually good. Um, but I would love to see more smaller stories. And I think they they exist. It's just I, I encourage people, you have to look a little bit deeper. There are a lot of, um, I don't want to say smaller, but like um, more um, low, under the radar. Filmmakers. Lower budget? Yeah. Yeah. Under the radar, up and coming filmmakers who are making really interesting things. And I just say like you have to you have to seek them out if that's what you're looking for.
3: Yeah. Um, let's go back to the phones here for a sec. Uh, Scott and Martinez, what's up? Yeah, hey there. Uh,
8: great show. Um, just uh, talking about influential pop mm-hmm. culture uh, flashpoints. Um, definitely the Jackson 5. Mm. Um, I was uh, like five or six when they dropped and um, used to, I, I don't know if I forced him, but I had a little brother. We used to like turn X and like dance around for uh, <laughs> family and company when they come over and, like, holiday dinners. But but also just beyond that, just kind of like I, I was fascinated by particularly, like, the mat- maturity, like the pain and kind of yeah. a- angst in Michael Jackson's voice. And um, so it just kind of led me to explore, you know, more singers like that, you know, um, so, you know, more... Soul singers like that, or torch singers like that, and and it, you know, then I ended up like managing a record store in Noe Valley. I ended up <laughs> writing about music for a decade. I ended up making some music documentaries, including one on Marvin Gaye, and it just kind oh, of wow. all launched from. Yeah, it all I made an A and E biography on uh, Marvin Gaye, and um, it just kind of all launched from that, um, from finding that music and just having it, you know, just run through me like that.
3: Oh wow! Nice, Thanks, Scott. That's really interesting. Yeah, my. My mom used to play uh, What's Going On constantly oh, in our house. Oh, same. Yeah. Man, was that song good, though.
2: Yeah. No, that whole album is yeah. fantastic.
3: It's interesting to go back to, and because for me, Marvin Gaye was, was kids' music. Like, I, that's what I listened to as a kid. Yeah. You go back and you read about Marvin Gaye's life, and you kind of put Marvin Gaye back into the cultural context, Washington, D.C., and all that, of, like, kind of where he's coming out of. And it's, um, yeah, it's... it's it's uh very informative. <laughs> you know, you're sort of like, oh, that's what Marvin Gaye was about. Not yes. just my mom's music.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes.
3: Um, have you re-experienced uh, anything like that as an adult? You know, stuff that you that you came up with that you decided like, oh, this is really different.
2: Oh, I mean, <laughs> well, speaking of Michael Jackson, I mean, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I was also... I was, aside from Ariel, I think that was probably my other big obsession as a kid was Michael Jackson. Now, granted, this was the 90s and it was not a time you were not cool if you liked him at that time <laughs> and for various reasons. Um, uh, but, you know, I've, I've had to sort of deal deal with and reckon with sort of my relationship to him in the wake of all the things that have been accused of, he's been accused of and uh, the documentary Leaving Neverland. Um, it's It's been it's been an interesting ride um but yeah i've had to sort of figure out what my relationship is to him yeah. and it's it's difficult
3: um <laughs> Sasha, one of our listeners, writes in to say, I probably wore out a VHS of Labyrinth with David Bowie. Labyrinth.
4: And now, as a parent, feel
3: very complicated at the implied desire of his character for a 14-year-old. Yeah. My sister made me watch that movie so many times. It's probably a tie between Labyrinth and Bye Bye Birdie. Bye
2: Bye Birdie. I love Bye Bye
7: Birdie. We're
3: talking with Aisha Harris, critic and host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. She is with us to talk about her new book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. She's got an event tomorrow at Mrs. Doway's in Berkeley and in Corta Madeira on Saturday. Oh, going out to a little Marvin Gaye. Thank you, Engineer Danny. We're hearing from you. What's a piece of pop culture that shaped you? The number's 866 733 6786. We'll be back with more right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're here in Studio B with Aisha Harris, critic and host of NPR's podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Talking to her about her new book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. Um, Let's go back to the phones here for a second. Nathaniel in Oakland. Welcome. Hey. uh, Oh, my gosh. So, uh,
9: Alexis and Aisha, big fans of you both. Thank Um, you. I have a little... Yeah. Um, I have a little story that, that hopefully isn't going to be too awkward, but since Aisha, you opened up it. But let's go uh, for it. uh, Now now you
3: got me excited, Nathaniel.
9: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm a kid of the eighties and, um, in the eighties, uh, Garfield was actually a funny comic or at least it was to me as a kid. So, um, I don't know if either of you know of this, but there was a, a TV show or rather a TV special where, um, there was, it was called "Here Comes Garfield," mm-hmm. and uh, it was a musical, voiced by or sung by Lou Rawls. Oh, um, oh my God! It was an amazing, you know, kind of like uh, blues jazz singer, and also another person named Desiree Goyette, who I'm not familiar with, who probably came out of musical theater. Um, and I listened to that. So my mom bought me that tape because I was a Garfield super fan as a kid. <laughs> And I listened to it over. Was that the awkward part, Nathaniel? Again.
3: <laughs>
9: yeah, that was, the part, yeah, part.
3: Oh man!
9: So, so like, I, I, but but you know, like, so my dad was a jazz musician, and that's why I think partly why I I loved the, the music so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's good music. It, it is. I mean, I I you can find it on YouTube, folks. Just
3: look it up. Don't be oh, ashamed. Oh my God! No, we <laughs> I mean, right after this show. I'm going to go find that. I actually am. I'm very curious.
2: Yeah, I, I did not know this existed. <laughs> <Yeah, me
3: neither. laughs> Takes a Garfield super fan to bring it to the people. Um, thank you so much, Nathaniel. I I super appreciate that. That is exactly the kind of thing I was hoping we would get. So <laughs> um, thank you so much for that. Um, uh, let's go to uh, Cole in Oakland, California. Welcome. Yeah. Hi, uh, Alexis.
10: Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, Aisha heard your uh, uh, your interview with uh, Aisha Roscoe uh, this weekend. Hey, uh, I just wanted to uh, agree with your um, your comment about holding holding black media to the same standard that we would uh, other uh, uh, other non black uh, media mm-hmm. uh, movies, TV shows, books, etc uh a lot like uh Viola Davis had to address the you know uh the controversy uh with slave trading amongst African tribes and in the Woman King mm. and like even like as much as I thought the first Black Panther was great, uh it, it fell down and you know on some parts. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh uh and Alexis I, I think you're doing a really good job at the show man. I always want to call in and tell you that. Oh that's
3: hey that's <laughs> thank you Cole. Hey Cole, what's something that you've loved recently? Yeah that you feel like we should know about?
10: Uh, what's something I watched recently?
3: Yeah, that you loved.
10: Oh, that I loved? Uh, I would have to say uh, the, the show on Netflix called Missing. Mm. Oh, I haven't uh, one out. Yeah, that was... Uh, not. Sorry, it wasn't a show. It was a movie. Uh, it was Missing. It had, uh, 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 I forget, uh, Neil Long in it. Oh, and, right,
2: yeah.
10: Yeah, and it was all shot through... Um, FaceTime, time uh <laughs> time calls uh through Skype through Ring uh video uh doorbells uh it was i mean i you can tell like it's probably like Super low budget. The they <laughs> but, 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 hey, they, they got it done. They told a great story uh, about, you know, human trafficking and how it could affect somebody. And it had uh, a great backdrop to it. So I thought that was really dope.
3: Oh, I love that. Hey, yeah. thank you so much. Cool. I um, Because I almost never watch anything, I, I take a recommendation seriously. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, this is going to be my show this month um, or my movie. Thanks so much, Cole. I really appreciate it um let's um go well let me ask you about the ip that never ends Mm -hmm. let's make sure we get to that because i mean i think we've all noticed this that there's just kind of an endless recycling of these you know cinematic um universes that were created you know 20 30 40 years ago and now it just feels like we're we're stuck unable to generate new things
2: yeah. And it also, I, I do worry now that we have all of these various uh, unions who are on strike, rightfully so. Like, you know, what have they, especially the writer's strike? Like, I, I wonder how a lot of these writers are feeling where they can't get original stuff done and they have to keep you know, pitching ideas that are based on an original property and IP. Um, it's It just feels, and this has always existed and it's, you know, pop culture and art is always going to be referencing something else. I'm, I'm not going to say that everything is wholly original. That's not true. I mean, right. just look at theater especially where, you know, you're seeing revivals all the time and there's been so many productions of Shakespeare. But I do think that there is something sort of cynical about Hollywood's big approach um, to mostly, you know, throwing all of its money and interest into just rehashing various properties and often unimaginatively. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not the case for everything. Like, the new Spider-Man? Love it. Like... Hmm. Absolutely love it. 10 out of 10, no notes. <laughs> uh, it might have been a little long, but other than that. Like, <clears throat> one
3: note. <laughs> one note. Uh,
2: but I, So there are exceptions, but I do think that I, I do fear for originality and creativity um, and how how people are able to get those things made uh, yeah. the way they want to get them made.
3: Speaking of fearing for originality and creativity, Scott writes in to say, Clearly the best villain music is The Imperial March by Death Vader. <laughs> Darth Vader. Darth
2: Vader. Yes, I mean that is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's technically Disney now because it's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Disney owns
3: Star dun, Wars. Dun, dun. Yeah. I mean, I will say the the Star Wars remakey things like the Man- I mean, the Mandalorian was so schlocky, and that's what made it good. I was like, this is the worst. This is like you know where I grew up. Channel twelve was like where they put like. You know, the warrior princess and like all the kind of like oh, yes, Conan. Know. Yeah, yeah, they're like <laughs> all the somewhat yeah. low budget shows. You'd, yeah. They'd be like on Channel 12. And I was like, I can't believe Disney's Mandalorian is a Channel 12 show, huh. but like somehow <laughs> is also has a huge budget and is this whole weird thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I mean, my other thought about it has been that as a, it, it does seem to me like at a really meta level that the our culture is kind of stuck going back through our history being unable to kind of imagine new futures. Like, even the futures that get imagined in sci-fi are, like, the ones from... (laughs) It's like, (laughs) let's go to Mars. You're like, you know, people have been thinking about this for a while. Like, (laughs) where is, like, this new... Even, like, the, like, solar punk futures and all that stuff. You're like, there's a book called Ecotopia that does exactly this in, like, 1908. You know, there's... It feels like we're at a moment where we're kind of... Because our country is so fractured, because... We really have struggled to have an actual real racial reckoning beyond just like kind of talking about race um, that we're kind of stuck.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think also the other part of it is I want to throw some blame on us audiences as well, because we're the ones going to like going to see the franchises in theaters. And so um, that there is this like this very big loss for the middle, just the mid budget Comedy mm-hmm. or mid-budget rom-com or drama, um, I think that's why something like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once just feels like such a great moment, um, mm-hmm. where you could have this very kind of big movie that was also very original, um, still drawing on familiar themes like multiverses. Like this sure. is this is the era we're in, but doing so in a way that just felt so fresh and yeah. innovative, and it did really well at the box office. But that's a rarity these days.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's go to uh, Jennifer in Oakland. Welcome, Jennifer.
4: Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for doing this show. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, we sure can. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Oh, great, man. I'm telling you, um, 80s, uh, that new wave movement with um, Rock Lobster yeah. and Devo, um, it, that music was just it was so unifying. Um, to, Jennifer, we even know, have
3: Rock Lobster for you playing just a little bit, <laughs> oh, just a little he, bit, so people can oh all my. hear it because this song is so good. I totally yes. agree with you. What did you love? What did Instant you love joy. about this song? Yeah,
4: Instant Joy. I love the whole style of um, the B52s, the Buffons, and um, Kate and Cindy, and it was oh the the, the organ. Oh my God, yeah, everything <laughs> about it was just insane. And there was a funkiness. There was a, a a bounce to that 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 song that just made everybody just go go wild and i was just so grateful for that and i was just telling the um interviewer that when I, I went to school back east, I credit myself for <laughs> introducing my classmates my stiff classmates from New York to New Wave who really loved it too. So it was good stuff. Really good times. Brings uh, back some really good memories. I love uh-huh. that. I love that, You're the
2: hip, the hip one. Yeah, the <laughs> seriously. Out
3: from the best coast
4: uh, going back east. <laughs>
2: That's right. Thank you guys so much. Hey, thank you, Jennifer.
3: Thanks. You know, one reason I wanted to take that call is the B-52s are one of those bands and Devo too a lot of those new wave groups Blondie all of those groups when I sort of encountered them it was I don't want to say it was as a joke Hmm. but it was like adjacent to a joke like it was not something I had to take seriously
2: yeah I mean I remember seeing the B-52s and Love Shack when I was a kid and it would play on like one or MTV yeah. I didn't really get into New Wave until I was in my 20s yeah, um, same. and then I was yeah I've, I was all into I love New Wave I love 80s Electronica like give yeah. me all of that um, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> information
3: it's, society yeah, yeah
2: yeah it's it's just really fun and and it's it just takes me to this I, I didn't live during those times I was born at the very end of the 80s but like I it takes me back to this place that I imagine being just so cool and, yeah. and, and awesome and I kind of wish I did live through them. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, I think the sad thing to say is, I think for me, I filed the B 52s in my brain like next to Pee Wee Herman, Ooh, not next yeah. to like Kraftwerk. Right. You know, like I just had it in the wrong place on the shelf. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's go to uh, Tyrone in Richmond. Welcome, Tyrone. Hi. Um,
11: I was uh, born in Gary. Uh, In Indiana. Yeah. And um, we moved to Toronto, Canada, (laughs) when I was, uh, you know, about four or five. And so we had a limited uh, back in the day because it's the 60s and early 70s, kind of pre-cable and stuff. So we were at the mercy of, uh, you know, two, or if you're lucky, three, you know, antenna derived. (laughs) Right. You know, ABC, CBS, NBC—that's all there was, right? Hmm. So there was a show called—I um, think it was Good Times. Oh. You know, and it <laughs> opened with a song, which was interesting, and scenes of uh, maybe Chicago, where I was a DJ. Jason. and but again, like I was a kid, and we we had some other black kids in a, in a school and stuff. But of course, it's, it's not a. A lot, because, of course, even in the United States, the, uh, you know, 12 or 13 percent black. But in Canada, maybe a bit. Anyway, um, but, you know, we were like everybody else. I said, what is it? It, it was like science fiction or something. <laughs> what, they, they speak a different language. And, of course, the big hit was Dino Mike with Jimmy J.J. J. Walker and stuff. But I, I said, is this what is? I thought it was science fiction, hmm. and I, I'm a kid, you know, ten or not even maybe or a little, wh- whenever it was. But but it's like they speak a different language, they um, they're separated. Hmm. But in in, in Toronto, and it's like they're just like everybody else. They talk the same. They act the hmm. same. I mean, even today, if you look, you know they they yeah. don't they don't sound different they don't have a different language they don't um
3: yeah well it's, you know, yeah. But
11: there's like there's a completely different sort of situation a lot of time you know you can tell a black person talking on the phone or or something in America yeah. even today, you know, like oh, that guy's black just by the way he talks or something, well, and, let's and like, talk
3: yeah, let's talk a little bit about i'm I think I'm to thank you for that um. Tyrone in Richmond um, I you know I, I there's you go into your name this actually relates to, directly into your book in some ways yeah that you you kind of trace this moment where sort of black naming conventions broke off from the white American naming conventions yeah and became kind of its own kind of cultural uh, world and what did you really kind of trace that to
2: yeah I mean around The black power movement, 60s and into the 70s, there was this sort of movement um, to amongst black parents in America to uh, lean toward naming their kids. African names or names that sounded African Um, and there's the black power movement there's also you know Muhammad Ali you have Mm -hmm. like roots which is a plays a big part in the book and and, uh, you know the name Kizzy apparently from a character from that book (laughs) Mm -hmm. became like a pretty common name in the 70s Um, and it's really interesting to to think about that the name and how that can hold so much connotation and this idea that naming your kid an African name was reconnect with the roots that you, you know, were, did not have because of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, I also connect it to this idea of like, there are people who think that I sound white or don't realize that I am black.
3: <laughs> Unless,
2: <laughs> Chance is...
3: the Rapper, in fact, asked you. <laughs>
2: Yes. During a phone interview with him, um, he asked he asked to clarify whether I was, was if I was black or white. Uh, uh, it was, you know, it was it was an interesting moment. Um, but he, he didn't mean it. in like it, it, anyway. Yes. Uh, so yes, read the book. It's in
3: the book. Read the book. I promise.
2: But yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting the way people talk and also the names that they are given, I think, hold a lot of meaning. And I explore that in the book.
3: Yeah. Your last uh, topic for us. I mean, how have you thought about the development of kind of the internet fandoms that you kind of, well, you know, you encounter in your job as a critic, right? Because they can be these, like, wonderful, inclusive spaces for people to discover that, ah, oh, I'm like a little monster. That's like the Lady Gaga or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm part of the <laughs> Bayhive. But are they bad? I mean, <laughs> that's the question. Are they bad? I, I Yeah.
2: Look, like, everything... things in moderation are fine, generally. Um, And I do think there is something to be said for especially young people being able to connect with others Um, who might not be in their vicinity over things that they love. Um, Tumblr fandom is, like, very wholesome, I feel, in many ways, and and exciting, and people doing fan fiction. And, like, that's that's a way to be young and creative. Um, But there's definitely a darker side and insidious side to it that often plays out in social media. Um, And as a critic myself, who has sometimes been critical of even artists that I love, I've had people just get very upset with me for just saying the smallest thing about their favorite artists and then turning it into an attack basically Hmm. and i think that that's a very common occurrence because people can hide behind their screens Hmm. um and it, it it can it can hurt people um especially people you don't even know
3: i mean that that sense of like i feel attacked when you're like criticizing somebody's favorite artist is something that I actually don't really identify with but it seems as if yeah people's identities have kind of fused into their fandoms in a way that do you find disturbing or do you find like kind of interesting
2: I I think I think it's both interesting and can be disturbing you know there I've seen it hasn't happened to me but I've seen other critics who have been critical of me, certain musical artists and those musical artists have actually like sicked their fans on them and it led to doxing and it's ju- it can just get really really ugly and i think that's the the darker side of it but yeah it's weird times we live in <laughs>
3: um last couple comments andy writes in to say for gen xers i can't think of a bigger event than live aid that happened on july 13th 1985 Totally remembers the day. So many great performers, some at the start of their careers, some at the end. That day will live on in the heads of people my age forever. And another listener writes in with an incorrect but delightful opinion. Poor Unfortunate Souls is hands down the best villain song ever. Villain songs are generally the best, and that one stands out, and it shows the movie makers, at least some, were not unaware of the sexism in the movie. <laughs> we have been talking with Aisha Harris, critic and host of NPR's podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour, talking about her new book on its pub day, Wannabe Be." Reckonings with the pop culture that shapes me. Thank you so much for joining us, Aisha. This
2: is so much fun. Thank <laughs> <Of> you. Delight.
3: <laughs> Thanks, all the uh, callers and commenters. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of forum with guest host Marisa Lagos.
5: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.